Tonight we are in Exodus chapter 3, studying the life of Moses. About 40 years have transpired from uh, the, uh, the time that uh, Moses was uh, fleeing from the king of Egypt, from Pharaoh. And as we look at this incident of the burning bush, it's one of the best known stories in the Bible. If you have any Christian background at all, I am sure you're familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush. And I think there are three reasons for that. First is because it's really dramatic in nature. Uh, I can still remember the Erdman's Bible story book that my mother used to read to me as a child. And I can vividly see the picture of the bush on fire and Moses standing before it. That uh, image is emblazoned, if you will, uh, in my mind. Uh, the second reason is because it is certainly central to the whole redemptive history. It is a turning point in Israel's relationship with God. And thirdly, because it is revelational in nature. Uh, there is so much in this story of the burning bush. So much so that I think I'm going to spend uh, at least two weeks and probably three weeks on this one encounter that Moses has with God. So let's look at Moses and the burning bush. Key verse, Exodus 3.10. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people the sons of Israel out of Egypt. That was the main uh, purpose of the burning bush, to commission Moses to uh, go to the land of Egypt and to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. So we begin by looking at the fact that God appears to Moses. God appears to Moses at Mount Horeb, verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb uh, is referred to as the mountain of God because it's the place where repeatedly God revealed himself to the children of Israel. He met often with his people at Mount Horeb. It's also known as Mount Sinai. Uh, you can think of the giving of the Ten Commandments. You can think of God's revelation to Elijah uh, on that, that mount. A lot took place on Mount Horeb. And God appeared to Moses as a flaming fire in the midst of a bush. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And as Moses turns aside to look at this uh, incredible sight of a bush that is burning, but is not turning into ashes, not consumed in any way. Uh, he wonders what is taking place. And so when he turns aside, God spoke to Moses from the bush. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. God reveals his holiness to Moses. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then God identifies himself from the bush. 
He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then God reveals his concern for his people. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have driven and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. God is very much aware of all that the children of Israel are experiencing, and he is moved by their sufferings. Uh, if you remember the last account was Moses going out to view his brothers in their hard toil uh, in the land of Egypt. And so here is this uh, God who is very concerned about the misery, the heartache that the children of Israel are experiencing. So then God reveals his purpose in appearing to Moses. God has appeared to Moses because God is going to deliver his people from Egypt. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. God has appeared to Moses because God is ready to act. And now behold, so God comes down out of heaven as it were. Uh, God makes himself known because God is ready to do something about the affliction of his people. See, God has appeared to Moses because Moses is going to be God's agent in accomplishing this great task. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you might bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. All of this is going to be accomplished through Moses' leadership. But Moses is reluctant to go to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? It's the most profound question that Moses raises at the burning bush. And it's one that God is uh, keenly interested in answering. So, God promises to enable Moses to accomplish the task. And he said, certainly I will be with you. Why should Moses be the one that goes to the land of Egypt? God's response is, because I am going to be with you. Now, God does not delineate all the unique qualities that Moses possesses. He doesn't say, because you grew up in the palace, because you know the Egyptian language, because you know your way around, because of any particular quality or ability in Moses, because bottom line is, all those things wouldn't have mattered if God wasn't with him. If God didn't give him the miraculous signs. If God wasn't going to uh, send the seven plagues upon Egypt. If it weren't for God's enablement, all the training, all the experience, all the education would have been for naught. It would not have accomplished anything. But a sovereign God had prepared Moses. His education was important and useful. His knowledge of the palace and how uh, Pharaoh would operate was beneficial. Uh, all of these things were qualities that existed in Moses' life because God was with Moses. God was sovereignly superintending Moses' life and uh, experiences. But it is because God is going to be with um, Moses. And then I have here, I will be with thee, 
are the most comforting words in the Bible. God's word to Abraham when he wanted to comfort Abraham. He said, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham my father. God's word to Jacob. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. God's word to Joshua. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. God's word to Gideon. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee. All of these great servants of God, the reason that they should fulfill God's purpose, the word of comfort, the word of encouragement, the word of help that God gives is, I will be with you. And they were the words of Christ to the apostles, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Why should the apostles go to the uttermost parts of the earth? Because God will be with them. And then it's God's word to us. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. That is the main concept of the idea that I will be with thee. I'm going to be your helper. And with God is our helper. There is no reason to fear. There's no reason to question our abilities, our uh, adequacy for the task, because it doesn't hinge upon us. It hinges upon God. That's why he should go. I will be with thee. But who is this God? The God that will be with us is the self-existing God. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What is his name? Names in the Old Testament were uh, revelatory in nature. They were to, they depicted some characteristic or attribute about the individual. Much like nicknames function in our culture. So that somebody may be called shorty. Or lefty. Or grumpy. Or string bean. That used to be my nickname in high school, string bean. It's hard to imagine, but there was a time when I was tall and skinny, okay? And, and these nicknames identified certain characteristics about people. Uh, they, they revealed something about their, their physical being or about their character. So the question is, what are you like? What are you like? What is your name? And God said to Moses, I am whom I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And that God will be faithful to all generations. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. This is what I am to be remembered as. Now, there are a number of names for God in the Old Testament. You think of the name God, okay? That which underlies the name God is Elohim in, in the Hebrew. And there are a lot of compounds uh, of uh, uh, the very names of God. The next is Jehovah, which is in our Bibles, English Bibles, all capital letters. When you see the word Lord in an English Bible, in all capital letters, that is the name Jehovah or Yahweh. That is the name of God that is given to us in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. That's what Jehovah means. It is the verb to be in Hebrew. Uh, he is the one. He is the one who exists. And so there is a picture of God in the burning bush. He is the self-existent one. He is not dependent upon the bush for its, his existence. The bush is not consumed because the fire doesn't need it. It represents God. God doesn't need the bush to exist. He can exist apart from the bush. And that is certainly manifested to the children of Israel when you remember that God goes before them when he leads them out of the land of Egypt and he is, appears as a cloudy pillar by day and a fiery pillar by night. And so at night there is just this suspended fire before them. No bush at all. Just fire there. Because he is the self-existent one. Not dependent upon anyone. And so we find an important practical lesson in this. And that is that Moses doesn't, excuse me, that God doesn't need Moses. It isn't going to be God and Moses that are going to deliver the children of Israel. It's going to be God that delivers the children of Israel. Moses is just going to be an instrument. And he could have used anybody. And to demonstrate the truth of that, eventually, in his reluctance, when Moses drags his feet and doesn't want to go, he says, all right, then Aaron can go and speak. Because he can use Aaron every bit as much as he could have used Moses. And he could have used any person that he wanted to use. He is the self-existent one. If you have the word Lord, capital L, in the English Bible, small o, small r, small d, that translates Adonai, uh, which means Lord or Master. So as I said, there are a lot of compound words like Jehovah Nissi, uh, Jehovah Jireh, which means God provides. Jehovah uh, and a, uh, another word that combines. Okay? So this name Jehovah is referred to as the Tetragrammaton because it's comprised of four letters. In Hebrew, 
The letters are consonants. And there are no vowels that are written in Hebrew. Uh, if you, I, I should have put it up on a screen. I didn't do it. Didn't think of doing it. But uh, if you would look at Hebrew, if you, if you look at a, a Hebrew Bible, there are little dots under the letters. And those little dots are referred to as vowel points. And they, they show you what vowels should be with those consonants. They were put there to help people read the Old Testament. Because after the Babylonian captivity, there were very, very few Hebrews that could actually read Hebrew. It became lost. And so they put the vowel points in to help. But uh, it's a guess sometimes as to what those vowel points should be. And when it comes to the name of Jehovah, some people say Jehovah, other people say Yahweh. And the reason is because we really don't know how the name of God is pronounced. Because the rabbis were very concerned about taking God's name in vain. And they reasoned that if they never said God's name, if they never said Jehovah or Yahweh, it would be impossible to take God's name in vain. Now, I think that's wrong. <laughs> I think you take God's name in vain even without pronouncing it, but that was their view. And they were so adamant that they wouldn't even read the name of God out loud when they were reading the scriptures. And so the rabbis would uh, replace the name of God with Adonai. If they're reading the scripture, uh, they would use the word Adonai. So you take Psalm 23, for example. And Psalm 23 in the Hebrew would read, Adonai ro'yi ro'achsar. So the Lord is my shepherd. Well, it's actually Jehovah. But they would have said Adonai. Adonai ro'yi ro'achsar. Because they didn't want to say the name of God. See, God would be revealing his self-sufficiency to a people in a way that he had not done so previously. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty, that is uh, the Lord of hosts, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. That's kind of a peculiar statement, taking at face value. Because God says, they didn't know my name Jehovah. But certainly... All of these individuals were aware of God's name. So you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it says, By the name of God Almighty, by my name Jehovah was I, uh, was my name Jehovah, was I not known to them. But Abraham, Genesis 13, 3 and 4, he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Notice all capital L's, it's Jehovah. Isaac and the Jehovah appeared unto him that same night. Genesis 26, 25. And he built an altar there and called upon the name of Jehovah. Jacob. Genesis 32, 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord, Jehovah, 
which said unto me. So they were aware of that name. And furthermore, God says in Exodus 3.16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying. So here God says to Moses that I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am Jehovah. So, did they know the name of Jehovah or not? Becomes the question when one looks at this extremely literally. And the reason I'm spending some time with this is because the liberals that have attacked the Old Testament, and especially the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, have developed what is referred to as the J-E-D-P theory. How many people have heard of the J-E-D-P theory? About three. Okay, well, uh, the theory is that the Pentateuch was written by different people at different times. It wasn't written by Moses. And it wasn't written at one time. It was written over centuries and generations. And you can determine what was written by the name of God that's used. So that if the name Jehovah appears, that means it must be late. For the writers that use the word Jehovah came after the time of Moses because God's name Jehovah wasn't known. So it must have been written back into the text. Not there originally, added years later. Then there are the Elohim sections, which are considered to be the oldest for that name of God. And then there are the Deuteronomists, because that is the legal aspects. And then the P stands for priestly, the sacrificial system and the, and the uh, priestly function. And that comes much, much later. So they dissect the, the Bible up into sections and, and uh, tear it apart, etc., etc., etc. Well, it's all based on this presupposition that God's name was not known prior to the burning bush. Much of that has fallen by the wayside. The JEDP theory has kind of uh, been dismissed, even in liberal circles, but it's still out there to some degree. What God is saying is that they had not fully comprehended. The word know in the Hebrew is a very interesting word. It has the same range of meanings that our word know uh, has in, uh, in English. We might say, uh, do you know so-and-so? Well, that might be, um, are you aware of their name? Uh, have you ever met Bob? Do you know Bob? That might be, uh, do you really know Bob? Do you know what his likes are? Do you know what his dislikes are? Do you, do you know what uh, makes him tick? 
Okay? So that if you do a reference, uh, one of the questions they'll ask is, how well do you know this individual? How long have you known this person? In what capacity have you known this person? What have you seen about this, this person? And then know can mean to have a very intimate and personal relationship with, such as, and Adam knew his wife Eve. That doesn't mean that he was introduced to her. Oh, that's who you are. You're Eve. Oh. Uh, and it doesn't mean that, that he became more aware of who she was. It means that he had a sexual relationship with her. It's a euphemism in Scripture for having sex. A very intimate relationship with God. God is not saying they weren't aware of my name. He's saying they didn't really fully comprehend that name. Up until now, they knew I was strong. They knew I was mighty. But they didn't understand the fullness of the idea that I am self-existent. That I alone am God. And the purpose of the plagues were to demonstrate God's superiority over all the false gods that, the, that were worshipped in the land of Egypt. God was going to show that he was the one and only true God. He was going to do a mighty work that up until this time was unprecedented, unheard of. The great work before that had been creation, but there was nobody to witness it. There was nobody to see it. But God is going to reveal himself in the plagues to the children of Israel in a way in which he had never fully revealed himself before. So, conclusion. Number one, God cares about his people. That is a primary thought in this burning bush. God cares about his people. Secondly, God works through individuals to accomplish his purpose. Uh, he wouldn't have to, but that's what he's chosen to do. He chose to use Moses. And he chooses to use us. Uh, he wouldn't have to. If God wanted to, uh, he could share the gospel without us. He could write it in the sky. He could proclaim it with his own voice. Uh, just like he, he did at the burning bush. If it was God's intention, uh, he could, without any human intervention at all, there is no need for him to send us unto the uttermost parts of the earth. He could, if he chose to do so, just reveal himself to people throughout the face of the earth and decide not to use us at all because he is a self-existing God. God does not need us. But he chooses to use us. He chooses to work through us. We are, in fact, his instruments. But we're not to focus on ourselves. We're to focus on Him. Because it is what He is able to do through us. So that Peter, when they marvel, when Peter tells the man to uh, uh, stand up and walk and he leaps and they look at him and he says, why do you marvel? As though by my power I was able to do this. 
Why are you looking in amazement upon me? Because this is what God is doing, not me. Third, God's working through individuals is in keeping with his will. Now here I'm beginning to look ahead. Because Moses is going to be reluctant. He's going to raise a lot of red flags. And one of them is, he says, I'm not eloquent. Neither heretofore nor since you've spoken to me. Uh, the word eloquent really is, is the word to be heavy-tongued. And uh, some people think that means that he spoke with a lisp. Other people think that means he stammered. But somehow, Moses had some kind of speech impediment. And so, Moses raises the question. What about my speech impediment? What about my stuttering? Because I wasn't eloquent before you spoke to me. And I'm not eloquent now. He thought that if God was going to be with him, that meant that his speaking ability would be incredibly transformed. And then God raises the question. Who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? And God is saying, oh, man, I wish I would have thought about that when I was creating you. If I would have just thought ahead a little bit, uh, I could have made you silver-tongued. You could have been a great order. You know, I, I wish I would have thought about the fact I was going to use you. No, it, it was God's intent that he would be a stutterer or that he would have had a lisp. It was once again, God demonstrating his power, his authority, his ability. It wasn't about Moses. It was about God. He intended Moses to recognize his weakness. Every bit as much as God intends us to recognize our weakness. It is good for us to say, who am I? But it is wrong for us not to get beyond it. We need to move beyond who am I and then begin to focus on who God is. And this God who was with Moses just didn't begin to be with Moses when uh, he appeared to him at the burning bush. But God was with Moses from the time that he was born. From the time that he was placed in the bulrushes. To the time in which Pharaoh's daughter pulled him out of those bulrushes to the time that he was receiving his education and training in the land of Egypt. God orchestrated all of the events in Moses' life. They were preparatory for what God was doing. And then lastly, God receives, reveals himself more fully as he works through his people. Moses is going to get to know God much better as Moses submits to the authority and will of God and as Moses, in obedience, acts on behalf of God. And Moses continually is asking God for a greater awareness of who God is. And so, even after the plagues, and even after the great deliverance of the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, 
If you remember, Moses is on the mount. And uh, he is about to receive the Ten Commandments. And he pleads with God and says, God, show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me. Have you ever wished that you knew God better? Have you ever desired to have a more intimate and personal relationship with God? Have have you ever desired to have a greater sense of His presence? Of His being, of His person? Have Have you ever just stopped and said to yourself, you know, sometimes God just seems like a principle to me. A doctrine, a belief. Not like a person. Not like someone I can really have a relationship to. Have there been times in which you've even said to yourself, I know God, but, you know, I really don't know God. I really don't know what He's like. I sometimes question if I've ever really had a meaningful experience with God in my life. That's what God is saying to Moses when he says, they didn't know my name. But I'm going to reveal myself to them now. I'm going to let them experience me in a way in which they've never experienced him before. And what I'm saying to you tonight is the best way for us to experience and know God better is by simply seeking to obey His purpose for our life. To allow God to take our weakness and use us in spite of that weakness. That's when we see God's power displayed. That's when we have this sense of an intimate and personal dependence upon God. My closing question for you tonight is, what in the last month have you done that you could never have done without God's help? What in this last month have you done that you never could have done without God's help. Now, don't play theological games with me. I realize that the scripture says that uh, we live and move and in him we have our being. He's the giver and sustainer of life. The one answer to that is we could never even take a breath if it weren't for God's enablement. What I'm saying to you tonight is how is your life different from that of a non-believer? What have you done this month that a non-believer couldn't have done? And if you can't think of anything, then we have to trust Him more. And we have to step out in faith more in order to be used of God that goes beyond our human talents our human resources. And that's when we really will get to know God. When we are so stretched that we come to an end of ourselves. And God purposefully did that in the life of Moses. God purposely did that in the life of Paul 
And I believe that God purposefully does that for us. And sometimes that means to lay us up physically just to know our need of God. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, lead us and direct us in our worship of you. Help us to know you better and to be used of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, and you are dismissed.